Welcome to the Live to 110 podcast. My name is Wendy Myers, and you can find me at livetoo110.com. And you can find this video podcast on the YouTube channel, Wendy Live to 110. Please go there and subscribe. And you can find the video also on the corresponding blog post on my website. Today, we have Michael McAvoy on the podcast. He's going to be talking about methylation and genetics and how they're interrelated. A lot of people are confused about methylation, and it's something that I think everyone looking to improve their health needs to learn learn their status. Are you an overmethylator or an undermethylator? It can have profound impacts on your health and any diagnosis that you may have. We'll also talk about genetics, the 23andMe test, and any kind of health apps. Michael has his own app that you can run it through to learn about your genetic SNPs and what uh, consequences those SNPs have on your health. So lots of great info on the show today. I am so excited for the launch of my Body Bio Rehab program. You can learn more at bodybiorehab.com. And I wanted to create an online program like this that address the very basics of health, the basic things that you need to do to live a long, healthy life. And this program contains five modules. There is one on diet, the type of diet you should be eating, exercise, what type that you should do and how much, stress relief. I think stress is one of the number one killers and you need to have lots of things in your toolkit to reduce stress. Then we have sleep. Many people are not getting adequate sleep and you can't heal your body and you can't detox and de-stress, etc. if you're not sleeping properly. So I talk about the importance of that and lots of simple tricks that you can do to improve sleep, what types of supplements improve sleep, which ones are the best. And then I talk about detoxification, the most important pillar. When people are daily exposed to thousands of toxic chemicals. It's estimated that there are 80,000 chemicals in our environment. And when we are exposed to all kinds of heavy metals, mercury, cadmium, lead, etc., these need to be detoxed from the body or they will eventually cause disease. And many practitioners, many health practitioners and doctors are not paying any attention whatsoever to detoxification. It continues to blow my mind because in the coming decades, this is going to be more and more important and we will see an increase in diseases, the increase in prevalence of diseases because of heavy metals and chemicals. So you have to learn how to detox and have a lifelong detoxification plan. And so that's what I teach you in Body Bio Rehab, how to completely make over your body chemistry from the inside out. To learn more at bodybiorehab.com, and it's only $49. I wanted to make it very affordable for many people who maybe can't afford to work with me or people just want to enhance their experience working with me. It's an amazing program that I've spent about six months developing. So enjoy it. Our guest today on the podcast is Michael McAvoy. He is a functional diagnostic nutritionist and FDN through the Functional Diagnostic Nutrition Institute. He is certified in hair mineral analysis per Dr. Lawrence Wilson's protocols, like myself. Michael is a certified nutritional consultant and a certified metabolic typing advisor. Michael has studied advanced functional blood chemistry analysis, cell membrane dynamics, lipids, and the profound body of work of Emmanuel Ravici, MD. Michael is on the staff of the Functional Diagnostic Nutrition Institute, specializing in research and development. He is currently engaged in a two-year course in professional herbal studies 
through Michael Tierra's East-West School of Planetary Herbology. Michael is dedicated to, is a dedicated health nutrition professional who offers a wide spectrum of services for national and, and international clientele. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Wendy, for having me. Great to be here. So we're going to talk about methylation and genetics, um, but can you tell the listeners first a little bit about yourself and uh, you know how you got into methylation and genetics, et cetera, and your website? Well, I've been a health practitioner for the past decade, and I have developed an entirely web-based nutritional consulting practice. I'm the CEO and founder of Metabolic Healing, Inc., and our website is www.metabolichealing.com. And we work with a variety of different types of clients. We have clients that are very sick with chronic illness, chronic fatigue, adrenal and endocrine problems, methylation dysfunction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so we found that there's definitely an integrated approach that can be used when helping to deal with a lot of these types of issues. And... Uh, we've been doing this for several years now, and we've focused a lot of our attention in the last few years specifically on individuals who have problems with methylation in particular. And oftentimes, these kinds of problems manifest with certain symptoms such as chronic fatigue, autoimmune problems such as Hashimoto's thyroiditis, other types of chronic gastrointestinal inflammatory problems, cardiovascular disease, especially if there's a familial risk for cardiovascular disease. Um, so a lot of these issues overlap. Not surprisingly, once you start realizing that the methylation cycle is directly related to each of these types of problems. Yeah, I just in, being a health practitioner myself, uh, I decided that I had to add genetics and methylation to my practice because it dramatically uh, affects people's health outcomes and their ability to detox, and so many factors can be affected by this. And you can't really help people unless you're you're uh, you know uh, attending to these uh, these health issues. So let's talk a little bit about what exactly is methylation for anyone that doesn't know what that is. So methylation is it's actually a biochemical pathway that's happening in every cell of the body, some, something like a billion times per second in every cell of the body. You could think that that's quite a dance of activity. And the methylation cycle, it is so interconnected with so many things that the body does from heart health, cardiovascular health, to endocrine function, to uh, neurotransmitters, so affecting mood and behavior. A lot of people with anxiety and depression and bipolar disorder have problems methylating. Um, so methylation is tied to so many different things. And uh, it's, it's a, as I said, it's a biochemical pathway that's going on in the body continuously. And we'll talk about genetics and the possible interaction that certain genes have on the methylation cycle, but methylation has gotten a lot of attention over recent years because there's so much scientific studies and literature that has been done on methylation, particularly regarding all of these types of health problems that we're seeing in the 21st century here. Can you talk a little bit about overmethylation and undermethylation, and if you think it's really that simple? Yeah, that's a good question. And so there's kind of this... Uh, this discussion of, well, what does it mean to be overmethylated? What does it mean to be undermethylated? Is there is there overlap? What exactly does this mean? So the methylation status is essentially some clinicians like to classify these things as undermethylated, overmethylated. So what does this exactly mean? So what is methyl? It's basically this 
it's this chemical compound that's in the body. It's a very simple chemical compound, and it's basically um, it's found all it's found all over the body. A lot of different nutrients contain methyl. A lot of different important vitamins and minerals contain methyl. Uh, there's certain words called methyl donors, and certain nutrients they'll donate a methyl group to another molecule, and it's kind of like this. Uh, it's kind of like a race, if you will, of nutrients. You can kind of imagine like you're handing off the torch to another runner in a race. In many ways, that's how the methylation cycle works. Is where these nutrients are basically kind of dumping off their methyl groups to other molecules, and so the, in this process, you've got all these things that go on, all these things that happen in the body. So some clinicians talk about under-methylated and over-methylated. Basically, these terms mean, in a nutshell, if you're under-methylated, it typically means that you have too few methyl groups. You need more methyl in your body. And um, people that are under-methylated, they tend to have and exhibit certain types of symptoms. They tend to be those that, for the most part, are, that suffer from depression they may also have high levels of histamine. They may have environmental seasonal allergies. And a lot of methyl donors actually can help with those kinds of symptoms specifically. Over-methylators, essentially, they, have too, they typically have too many methyl groups. And there's an overload of these methyl groups. There's too many of them. The body can't break them down, get rid of them quickly enough. And so typically over-methylators, they tend to exhibit anxiolytic symptoms, so more symptoms of panic and anxiety disorders. Uh, they may be estrogen intolerant. They may be very creative and artistic in nature. And so there's a lot of very interesting traits that are different among the over and under-methylators. And it really comes down to how certain nutrients are being used and how enzyme reactions in the body are affecting these particular nutrients. Once you know your methylation status, uh, you know, what do you do? Are there supplements that you should uh, take or foods that you should avoid, etc.? Well, there can be, and uh, it certainly everything really depends on each person. There really aren't kind of broad, one size fits all approaches. But once you know if you're under methylated, what the what we do in our practice is essentially we do some specific functional lab testing that helps us to kind of see what a person's methylation status is, but we want to always kind of correlate and corroborate these lab tests with a person's clinical history, with their symptomology, just knowing more about the person in general. And so once we kind of get this good idea of what type of client that we're working with, then we can kind of say, well, these types of nutrients are likely going to be more useful for you specifically. So we try to get as individual and as specific as possible. So for example, um, under-methylators tend to respond very favorably to zinc and B6 and methyl donors like um, betaine hydrochloride. And so uh, often and somebody, other methyl donors like SAMe is another big one that especially works for the the undermethylated um, depressed individuals, they have depression issues. So, but conversely, if somebody's overmethylated, they may tend to do much better with um, with niacin or niacinamide, vitamin B3, folates, different forms of B12, because the different nutrients they stimulate different enzymes in the body. And so, if you're under overmethylated, it really can come down to the kind of looking at these nutrient groups as ways to really kind of figure out how to best individualize it. So um, so the answer is, yeah, there can definitely be a lot of um, 
a lot of leeway to play with in terms of what individualized nutrient therapies we're looking at. Yeah, I, I agree. It has to be highly individualized. There's uh, so many variances between, you know, within, over, and under methylation. So what are the best tests to determine methylation status? How does someone figure out what, what they are? So first of all, I want to just say that uh, in terms of methylation, there's kind of a lot of kind of overview about different tests that are out there. And the, the methylation status is probably the best test to kind of gauge if a person is over or under methylated is the SAMe to SAW ratio. And what does that mean? It's basically the S-adenosyl uh, methionine to S-adenosyl homocysteine. This is the, the, the major methyl donor is SAMe, S-adenosyl methionine, and basically creates this other nutrient called S-adenosyl homocysteine. Basically, the ratio between uh, the SAMe and the SAW tells you a lot about the overall methylation status that the person has. There's other indirect ways of, of kind of assessing overall methylation function, and uh, the, the whole blood histamine is one that we've been experimenting with and using in our own practice for uh, quite a while now, and that's essentially because histamine is a very important, very interesting compound that gets produced in the body. Um, histamine, for example, is it's an inflammatory compound produced by certain immune cells. A lot of people listening to this podcast may already know about low histamine diets and the problem with histamine-containing foods like red wine and aged cheeses and bananas and avocados. Some people think they may have histamine intolerance, and that very well may be true for certain people. But histamine is also a neurotransmitter, and by being a neurotransmitter, histamine affects the brain. It affects mood and behavior and mental health. It interacts with other neurotransmitters. Histamine also is important for gastric acid synthesis, so it's really hugely critical for gut function, and stomach acid uh, is a major component of gut function. Uh, histamine regulates the pituitary and the hypothalamus, and, and specifically the hormones that those uh, glands produce. So histamine is actually being metabolized and degraded by methyl groups in the body. And so when a person has high histamine, the reason why they tend to be undermethylated is because the enzymes that metabolize and break these histamines down tend to be reduced. There's not enough of these enzymes present to break down the histamine. And so by, by kind of getting them on the protocol, it helps them to, to kind of modulate their histam histamine response more. So um, I don't know if I answered your question. I kind of went off on a little bit of a tangent. No, we like tangents. We love tangents. <laughs> yeah. So so oh the so histamine it's an indirect biomarker of the methylation status, and we find that there's a lot of correlation between histamine, their methylation status, as well as what types of individualized nutrient therapies uh, they tend to, to to do well with. So um, those are the two major ways, but we always. In addition to looking at that stuff, we, we always want to look at some other evidence and some other lab tests. So in our practice, we, we utilize functional blood chemistry analysis, basically with every client that we work with. And it's a very different way of analyzing a blood test than from a kind of a, a Western pathological uh, allopathic way of analyzing blood chemistry. We're looking to assess functionality. And so there are certain key nutrient deficiencies that often show up over and over again that you can screen for using routine blood chemistry. So we, we look at the alkaline phosphatase, the ALT, AST, GGT enzymes, liver enzymes. Uh, we look at the, the mean corpuscular volume as, a, as an indirect marker of B12 and folate utilization. We can look at serum, zinc, and copper 
uh, is, is an indicator of zinc and copper metabolism, which that particular nutrient group, zinc and copper, can have a huge role in how the body functions for better or for worse. Kind of one of the, the repeat offenders of nutrient imbalances in the body is low zinc, high copper. And that's especially true in certain client populations. People that have mood, behavior, and mental health issues, they tend to be copper toxic. And this is frequently found among people that have schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, mania, psychosis, um, High copper can also be a problem for uh, – as a potential cancer risk factor because cancer thrives when there's too much copper in the body. Angiogenesis is dependent on copper utilization. So there's a lot – and PMS in women, that's another thing that tends to exhibit high copper, low zinc. So these are all – these nutrients directly have an effect on how we methylate and how our biochemistry functions. So we always want to be as thorough as we can. We want to look at specific lab tests that kind of give us clues about what a, a client nutritional protocol should look like. Yeah, I agree with you. Copper is a huge, huge problem. I, I test, uh, do hair mineral analysis and other blood, blood work to determine uh, copper dysregulation of the body. And it uh, presents a whole host of issues for people, and in, including contributing to methylation issues. Um, but let's talk a little bit about uh, methylation and genetics and how they're related. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so genetic testing has kind of opened up the floodgates in the last five years. It's kind of been this craze uh, of genetic testing, probably due to the company 23andMe having kind of this direct consumer genetic testing, which you can now screen for you know, nearly a million genetic SP, singular nucleotide polymorphisms. And so as a result of that, there's been a huge amount of kind of attention that people have wanting to start looking at their genetic profiles and try to analyze where their heritable strengths and weaknesses are. So with any kind of a craze, that, that any kind of a health craze, I've kind of learned over the years that you have to really be kind of careful about it because there's always going to be some truths, par partial truths, half truths, and then just stuff that's just completely false. And I definitely feel strongly that this is true with regards to genetic testing. Um, I do believe, and I think that there's no one that really can argue with this, that the heritable gene mutations can certainly cause problems and can predispose people towards uh, adverse health effects and, and certain symptoms and diseases. I think that's totally true. But um, what I, what my perspective differs is that genetic testing by itself, it really cannot be used to construct any kind of a meaningful therapy or protocol for somebody. Primarily because your heritable gene status, it does not change, um, whereas your genetic expression can change. And that's not the same as saying that you're just, you know, I have MTHFR, C677T, I'm plus plus homozygous for that. That means I'm just going to start taking 5-methylfolate to, to try to, quote unquote, bypass that gene mutation. Well, some people do well with methylfolate. Some people do horrible with methylfolate. And so the ready-made approach that so many clinicians use is let's just try to supplement with this nutrient for this gene mutation. And it would certainly be wonderful if biochemistry was that simple, but obviously it's not. Things get a lot more complicated as you start really working in depth with somebody. You start to realize that there's a lot more things going on rather than just a single gene mutation. So we try to use if we if we do find value in genetic testing by by all means you know we do analyze you know certain genetic tests um, from from a functional perspective trying to understand where the weak points may be found and then try to correlate those 
genetic test results with some type of other evidence, whether it be a biochemical test or clinical history, to try to get more of a holistic understanding of how to best use the gene test result. But there's a lot of clinicians out there that I feel are wrongly trying to use genetic testing as a sole approach to, to generate any kind of a protocol, and we just feel that that doesn't work. And we, we know that it doesn't work because we've tried it ourselves and we've seen the, the pitfalls of it. So um, genetics definitely can influence your methylation cycle. And I want to be clear about that, that not totally um, throw the whole genetic discussion in the garbage because um, it's, uh, on the flip side of it, genetics can certainly have a tr- tremendous influence on how we methylate. And there are certain genes that are operative in the body that directly influence how we methylate. And um, it, they certainly can influence how our body functions. So just as kind of a very brief, how about one-minute overview of genetics. Uh, so you basically have uh, two different kinds of gene mutations. You have what are called um, somatic gene mutations, which basically are gene mutations that form um, – throughout the course of your life. So if you're ex- exposed to certain types of environmental chemicals or radiation, these can cause what are called somatic gene mutations. These somatic gene mutations are not passed down to your uh, children, uh, per se. Heritable gene mutations um, are, or are also referred to as germline mutations, and these are what are passed down from generation to generation. So um, these are two different kinds of gene mutations. So what does a gene, what does a heritable gene do? So for example, your genetics or your DNA is like a big biological template, big instruction manual of how the body works. And we've got all kinds of different genes in our body. The instruction manual of our genes then gets basically translated into what's called RNA, ribonucleic acid. And the RNA is how we make these enzyme workers, these worker bees, if you will, that kind of direct the show of of the biochemical activity that's going on all over the body. So there's all kinds of things that we don't even understand yet about genetics. You know, problems in the transcription process, the copying the DNA into the RNA. Uh, We don't understand all the different myriad of factors that can be influencing it all of the time. There's a big discussion about epigenetics and how epigenetics, which is regulating genetic expression, is possibly more important than just your gene status alone. And so, again, there's so many more factors to look at with regards to just saying, here's a genetic test result, You're, you have certain disease risk, etc. It's a lot more going on than that. And I think that our overall understanding of genetics is in its pre-infancy. That said, uh, in terms of how genes affect our methylation status, they certainly can. And if you are, let's say, predisposed, if you do have the MTHFR gene mutation, if you're homozygous, you have a double mutation in that, one of those key two alleles, then it certainly can impact how your body makes methylfolate. But at the same time, I want to give an example, and this has already been documented in the literature. Let's say you have a, a pair of identical twins. They have identical DNA. But twin number one consumes – it's very healthy, takes extraordinary care of their health. Let's say twin, let's say they both have the MTHFR double mutation. But twin number one uh, eats a whole food diet consisting of very high levels of natural folates found in foods. But, is tw- but in the con- flip side, twin number two consumes a junk food processed food diet that's depleted in folate and other nutrients. I'm going to bet the house – that twin number two winds up developing cardiovascular disease, whereas twin number one won't, because through the 
control of dietary and environmental factors despite having identical DNA, twin, twin number one has truly bypassed their gene mutation, whereas twin number two succumbs to their genetics. So this has already been shown that identical twins can have totally different outcomes with regards to their health despite having identical DNA. And so we cannot just look at uh, heritable gene status alone as knowing what's wrong with a person. Yeah, I like looking at the genes to try to dictate how you should live your, your lifestyle and what kind of diet that you should potentially eat. Like for me, it was very profound when I learned I had a gene that reduces my metabolism of estrogen. So for me, that's a red flag. Maybe I need to reduce my caffeine because caffeine reduces the body's ability to metabolize excess estrogen, really pay attention to my liver health and do coffee enemas, liver flushes, etc. because the liver metabolizes estrogen, etc. So I think it has really profound influence when people learn what their genetic susceptibilities are, and it, that can have a profound influence on their, their behavior and their lifestyle. Yeah, it certainly can, um, but it's important to keep kind of a broader perspective in terms of really understanding what the body is doing at any given point in time. So if somebody does come to us with a certain gene mutation, um, we are always wanting to kind of put all of the evidence together about that particular gene. So if somebody has the MTHFR mutation, for example, there's about 20 questions that we need to ask to understand if that gene mutation is causing a major problem with that person or not. And we also have to look at certain lab tests that are going to help to validate whether or not that person is able to, quote unquote, bypass that mutation as they're currently living. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about uh, people's methylation status and methylated B vitamins? For instance, uh, many people that are over-methylators have issues with certain methylated B vitamins. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so there's definitely um, some B vitamins that contain methyl donors to them. So, for example, 5-methyltetrahydrofolate is one of them. Another one, another B vitamin is um, uh, is, uh, uh, methylcobalamin, which is the the form of B12 in the cells. Some people actually have problems with these types of B vitamins because of the methyl in the term, in the instance of methylfolate, it may not only be the methyl that people react adversely to, but it could also be the glutamic acid conjugates that are found in the folates in general. So if you look at the different kinds of folates that are that, that exist, you have folic acid, and then you have another one called folinic acid or calcium folinate, and then you have 5-methyltetrahydrofolate. So these are all different kinds of folates. Uh, folic acid, for example, is synthetic. It's not found in nature. It's actually poorly metabolized by the body. The liver doesn't contain enough of the FOLR2 enzyme to metabolize it in any active form. And so you wind up having an excess amount of folic acid that's circulating in the blood. Uh, Folinic acid is kind of a precursor to methylfolate, and it's typically tolerated well. Methyl tetrahydrofolate is the active form in the cells. It contains its own methyl group, um, but it also has... is a nine or ten glutamic acid conjugates. A lot of the common symptoms of methylfolate supplements is anxiety or mania, even. And we've had people before taking like 15 grams of Deplin. They would come to us, which is the drug form of methylfolate, and they 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 were hospitalized because of some psychotic episode after taking it. And you have to realize that methylfolate is is loaded with these glutamic acid conjugates, which can increase the free pool of glutamate in the system, which is an excitatory neurotransmitter that can lead to a lot of those kinds of symptoms. 
So it does contain methyl as well, and sometimes people react adversely to methyl. Same thing with methyl cobalamin, and sometimes you need to give another form of cobalamin like um, hydroxycobalamin, which is the form that's actually found in foods, uh, or adenosyl cobalamin, or even cyanocobalamin, which is kind of been demonized even though it's an it's a acceptable form of B12. So it really can uh, – methyl can adversely affect certain people. It's true. And, and what for a, other people, it could actually be very important for them, I should say. Yeah, because there are some people, I was just, just about to say, that there's some people that can't convert uh, certain B vitamins in their, their raw form uh, to the methylated forms in their body. So they need the methylated forms. Another key nutrient that tends to not be absorbed well or that's kind of one of these repeat offenders of nutrient deficiencies is, is pyridoxal 5-phosphate. Um, and so just as a kind of a recap, you have, you have nutrient – um, you have nutrients, and then you have um, the coenzymated nutrients. And so uh, coenzymated is the actual form that the body uses for enzymatic reactions. So in the instance of, of vitamin B6, the active coenzymated form is called P5P or pyridoxal 5-phosphate. And from our own research, this is probably one of the most common nutrient deficiencies. And there are certain gene mutations that can predispose or prevent somebody from being able to convert pyridoxine into its active coenzymated form. And we just see over and over and over again how many, so many people uh, do fantastic when they start supplementing with a little bit of P5P into their body. Yeah, yeah. I've started taking that myself and I've really felt a big difference in that. Uh, also, a lot of people need B5 as well. Uh, so if they have adrenal fatigue, they need to take extra B5 every day. Yeah, pantothenic acid B5 is definitely one of those kind of really hard to get nutrients, not because it's not found in foods, but because pentothenic acid as a molecule is very large, it's, it's difficult to take up in, in high enough quantities in the intestinal mucosa. And so supplementing with, with B5 could definitely ensure that you're getting more of it in the body. Can you talk about some of the tests that you can do to learn more about your genetics? We know about the 23andMe, and I have a lot of clients come to me, and their doctor tested them just for MTHFR, which is probably not enough. Can you talk right. a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, this is a great a great example is that you know, you've know you got certain doctors in, in labs like LabCorp Quest are basically running these relatively expensive gene tests, but they're only testing single nucleotide polymorphisms. So Somebody would say, oh, their doctor, quote-unquote, diagnosed them with the MTHFR C677T double mutation, but they didn't test any other SNPs that are related to that particular gene. So it's kind of like, well, what's the point? I mean, how – you know, and this is just an illustration of how reductionistic, you know, you could possibly get – let's look at the smallest possible fragment on a chromosome and try to have any sense of idea about what to do based upon that alone. And so to me, that's a very fragmented kind of reductionistic way of looking at genetics. A more holistic way of looking at the genetics just by itself is by looking at a bunch of gene S&Ps that are related to one another, that interact with one another, or are found on the same chromosome. So in the instance of MTHFR, I'm, I'm going to want to look at all of the other enzyme, the, the status of the other genes in that methylation cycle. So MTRR, or MTR, or BHMT, or MAT, or CBS, all of these other enzymes that are related. Nitric oxide synthase, it's another big one, um, because methylfolate influences how we make nitric oxide. And so there could be all kinds of implications for what's going on if you have compound homozygous status. 
So let's say somebody is MTHFR plus plus, but they're already they're also um, NOS plus plus. That means that not only do they tend they may have a problem making methylfolate, but they also may have a problem making nitric oxide for two reasons, because both of those genes are involved in nitric oxide production. So you got to look at kind of the whole kind of picture in just in terms of genetics. So um, in our practice, we have developed a reporting system, a nutrigenomics kind of analyzer reporting system that basically takes the 23andMe raw data file of our clients and it automatically analyzes it and converts it into a PDF document that looks at about 200 of those uh, singular nucleotide polymorphisms. And to me, that's a better way of kind of getting an overall profile of somebody's genetics if they want. And there's all sorts of apps that are out there that are doing these kinds of things as well. So, um, But we do recommend using 23andMe if somebody wants to test their genetics and wants to learn more about their heritable gene status, we recommend it because it's only $99. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, yeah, it's so inexpensive. So inexpensive, and then it just costs another to run it through our uh, app. It only costs another thirty-seven dollars. So for one hundred and thirty-seven dollars, one hundred and thirty-six dollars, you have a, a lot of genetic data on what your you know heritage strengths and weaknesses are on a, a good list of of some of the genes that that you have. Obviously, not all of them because we don't have that yet. <laughs> Nobody Where, does. Yeah, no, no one does. Where can you find that app? So uh, we have a link to. Um, to, uh, which I can provide you with, and you can give that to your viewers. It's basically very simple. You go, you pay the $37, and you get an automated email, and it just basically sends you, uh, tells you how to upload your data from your 23andMe results. So it's very simple, to five-minute process, and that's it. Okay, great. And that link will be in the YouTube description or the, the corresponding blog post on liveto110.com if you want it. Um, I think that's incredibly uh, valuable to do because you go to the 23andMe.com and they only give you ancestral information like what your uh, family history is, et cetera. Right. Um, but th- and, they're not allowed to do health information anymore. Yeah, exactly. And so even if people say, well, I, I went to 23andMe website and it says that they're not offering health data anymore, just ignore that. That's just their disclaimer. They're still testing for the whole genetic profile, the whole genome profile uh, through their saliva testing. All you want is to get that raw data file. If you want to learn about your you know, ancestry, that's all fine and great, and that's what they're basically offering. But if you want to really get kind of the meat of the report, you got to kind of dig a little bit. you got to kind of be a health detective and dig into that raw data file. Are there any other genetic tests that you perhaps don't recommend? That I don't recommend? Yeah, because hmm. there's, there's a lot of genetic testing out there. There's a lot. Well, there's a lot of different genes that are being analyzed for a lot of different things. And the question is, you know, how, you know, there, and then as as we progress through the 21st century, there's going to be thousands more genes that are being studied. And so I, I'd say it's not things that I'd not necessarily recommend per se, but I'd say look for genetic testing that will kind of help to get more of a holistic perspective of how it really fits into your health, uh, rather than the end all be all. And so I'd be wary of anything that claims to be the end-all, be-all of anything yeah. because I don't think there is an end-all, be-all to anything. Health is an endless unfolding process of discovery and yeah. genetics is certainly one part of it. Can Yeah, I think genes are a great way to look for healing opportunities to see what further testing you need to do or what more do you need to explore. Um, uh, it's just not a, a one-size-fits-all. You have this gene that means this, this gene, take a supplement. It's just not quite that simple. Can you talk a little bit about um, can gene mutations be healed? Can you turn your genes on and off? I think it's something maybe a lot of people don't understand. 
Well, heritable genes will never change. You're, what you're born with and what you've inherited from both parents, that will remain forever in terms of the status of those particular genes. So, um, but the, 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 the expression, if the quote-unquote expression of certain genes, they can change, and that's kind of a really complicated discussion that really goes way beyond this call. But uh, there is a way to kind of attenuate how our gene mutations are expressed. So in the example that I gave before about the identical twins with identical DNA, yes, they have certain gene mutations which may predispose them towards a certain problem, but there's ways of kind of attenuating your genome through kind of looking at the epigenetic expression of, of how diet and environmental factors and stress really does play a huge role in how certain genes do get expressed. I should also point out that in terms of just somatic mutations, which are, again, those, gene, those types of gene mutations that are not inherited from the parents, but we have developed after conception. And this is basically how many forms of cancer uh, are formed is through somatic gene mutations. Um, there's a lot of discussion about how environmental triggers are a huge component of this. And there's not discussion, it's a known fact right now that there's a number of carcinogens that exist which have the ability to create various somatic gene mutations through the process of what's called mutagenesis. And so many people aren't even aware that common household chemicals are known mutagens. They're known to cause genetic mutations, somatic genetic mutations. And so, for example, um, bromide, for example, is a mutagen. Mercury cadmium are mutagens. Um, uh, the different types of uh, chemicals that you find in household cleaning products can be mutagenic and carcinogenic. So um, this is really critical, and these things really need to be understood. And as Wendy pointed out earlier, bringing it kind of back to methylation, realize that our body's ability to repair our DNA, it, which, you know, to prevent uh, continual gene mutations from spiraling out of control, somatic gene mutations from spiraling out of control, we have to methylate properly. And once we're methylating properly, it, one of the major things that we're doing is we're helping to regenerate and repair damaged DNA that, that happens on a daily basis from various, for various reasons, for the aging process, etc. So methylation not only helps to regenerate our DNA, but it also is a pathway of what's called biotransformation helps to detoxify a lot of these carcinogens that we're being exposed to, that we're breathing in, that we're drinking, that we're consuming on a daily basis, even if we don't even know it. Yeah, I think that's uh, so important to to talk about detoxification and how certain chemicals and heavy metals can affect our genetics. Because when uh, our genes are copying, um, when they are uh, you know transferring, the uh, heavy metals and mineral deficiencies can interfere with how our genes are copied and cause mutations. Um, it's not just that um, our, there's a defect in our body. Heavy metals and chemicals and mineral deficiencies are causing this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. And we need nutrients as the main fuel of every biochemical pathway inside of the human body, including the methylation cycles. Nutrients are not just things you take supplementing. People think, oh, I'm just going to take a supplement. And but uh, take a multivitamin. Well, realize that those nutrients are actually the, the the chemical fuel that your cells are using to work. So, and that's true of your food, obviously. Is that's what that's what the food and nutrients do. They fuel these biochemical processes that repair tissues, that repair damage to certain tissues and organs, so that we can kind of offset the effects of aging on our cells. So. Um, if you look, if you open up any biochemistry textbook, for example, 
every single biochemical pathway that exists in the human body, every thousands and thousands of them are all driven by nutrients, nutrient substrates or nutrient cofactors or promoters. So all the B vitamins, all the minerals, all the trace minerals, macro minerals, these are all involved and operative in the nutrient in the biochemical processes, including methylation, as a way to keep the body operating. And certain gene mutations can influence how we use these nutrients for sure. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about um, what else you can learn from from getting your genes tested? What are some of the things that people can find out by doing a twenty three and Me test? So. 23andMe is primarily using um, their genetic testing as a way to kind of learn about your ancestry. And this is kind of a really cool thing if you haven't done this before. Uh, it'll help to track where um, your, you know, your family came from in certain parts of the world, certain parts of Europe, certain things that I learned about myself that I had no clue about before, about having Asian descent and having South American descent and Sub-Saharan African descent. And where did it, where did it, it just kind of leads you into wondering, well, where, where, where did along the genetic line did this all happen? So that's really one of the cool things that I think is, is really good about doing 23andMe is it does give you that information. Is there anything in regards to health um, that people can learn about? What, what kind of things that can they learn based on their genes? Well, I don't know specifically if they're still doing any health-related uh, information anymore because the FDA kind of put the kibosh on that. But um, they were for a while, and I don't know if anybody's already done it before the FDA gave them that notification, but there were certain quote-unquote disease risk percentages they were giving, and that's very controversial stuff. A lot of people think that I have such and such gene mutation, and therefore the only real solution to that is to excise my breasts and to remove organs to prevent mm-hmm. diseases like cancer. That's a very controversial, really touchy subject, but I think it's one that's really important to kind of bring into the open because as we learn more about genetics, we'll really understand that the heritable gene status is not the only thing that really matters, and that controlling gene expression through the epigenetic modification of, of our gene genome is just as, if not more important, than the actual gene status itself. Mm-hmm. And so um, I really think that as, as present, our present understanding of genetics is still in its infancy. In 100 years from now, we're going to have a lot better understanding about what the genome really is and it's doing in the body. And even on a daily, monthly basis, there's so much research coming out uh, on genetics and epigenetics that it's, it's really mind-boggling. So when someone runs their 23andMe through, through your uh, genetic app, what, what kind of things can they learn? Could they learn about the GAD, where they have more anxiety, like some of the things like that? So in our nutrigenomics profile, we screen for a couple hundred of these, these, these gene variants called S&Ps. And so here's the other thing is that each gene has all these different variants of itself called S&Ps or commonly abbreviated as S&Ps, which means singular nucleotide polymorphism. So and then if you look at the literature, there are certain S&Ps that have been studied more than others as being really influential. So in terms of the MTHFR, for example, there's two, of all the different S&Ps, the MTHFR S&Ps, there's about two S&Ps that have been studied probably include more than 90% of the total research in that single gene are just those two S&Ps. So they definitely have a, a big wheel of influence. So that's true of other genes as well. So what you get with our report, you get kind of this overview of what the gene status is with certain S&Ps. And then you also get a description of what each S&P has, has been shown to do. So what we're really concerned with is the function, understanding the function of what each of these these genes are, are operative, what they're doing in the, in the body. 
Yeah. You know, so for example, MTHFR, it's it's donating a methyl group for the, the purpose of of, of uh, you know remethylating homocysteine, and and so we give this overview of what each of these genes does. You brought up GAD one, glutamate decarboxylase. This is the gene that converts uh, glutamate into GABA, which is an important two important neurotransmitters that can go wrong if you have compounded mutations in these particular genes. So we talk about what we and also we're cite every every gene that we're uh, that the report assesses, it's just being kind of citations back to the scientific literature about what has been what's known about that particular S and P. Okay, yeah, I, I learned with uh, I have a few of the GAD mutations, and that can cause people to have more anxiety, more addictions, and things, food or what what have you, and that they probably need to take some GABA um, to to try to to regulate that since they're not really making enough GABA. Or taking more thiamine and P5P because those yeah. are the cofactors for the glutamate GABA conversion. Yeah. And so if, so if somebody were to come to me with a, a high frequency of GAD1 double mutations, what I'd want to do is I'd want to look at the key nutrients such as uh, – so look at some lab testing would tell us more about B6 deficiency or thiamine deficiency. So we might run a urinary organic acids test to get those indicators. And you could also look at like a neurogistics urinary neurotransmitter test to see what the glutamate and the GABA levels actually are. If you're seeing correlations there, then it's a good indication that there may be some problems going on with the GAD1 gene. Yeah, it's so interesting that you can go so, down so many rabbit holes when you're, you're looking at the genetics. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really true. So you offer uh, several courses to, to health practitioners and to the public. Can you talk a little bit about those? So... Over the past several years since we've been working with uh, individuals with various gene mutations and uh, just as importantly looking at certain functional lab tests that are associated with these gene mutations or at least can be uh, associated with them, basically we've – over the last several years of working with this kind of in-depth client management, the culmination of which I've created a – uh, a, a clinician master course, clinical master course called the MTHFR Methylation and Biochemistry Master Course. And it's essentially a 10-hour training program that uh, is basically uh, consists of two different modules. Module one teaches the clinician all about the major methylation-related genes. It also basically gives you an overview of what genes are for, uh, how we convert DNA into RNA, and just kind of a very, very basic kind of genetic 101 assessment of, of all that. And then we look at an animated version of the methylation cycle and how all of these things are fitting together. So you can actually kind of see the, the dance of nutrients moving uh, in an animated fashion. And then in module two is module two is called implementing methylation and biochemistry specific nutrition. And module two is all about the implementation of uh, nutrient therapies that are specific for an individual. So this includes analyzing uh, not only using a gene test, but also looking at certain key functional lab tests that could be real deal makers with certain clients. And so we look at the urinary organic acids test. We study the, the functional blood chemistry analysis. We look at plasma amino acids. We look at histamine, zinc, copper, urinary pyrroles, all of these other functional tests that from a clinical perspective can really be huge, and very important for understanding what's going on with somebody. And so Again, it's kind of this really holistic interpretation of how to really best use a genetic test in combination with this overall holistic 
uh, clinical investigative process. And so we go really in-depth, and there's really no other course that exists that does this kind of material. The other thing I was kept in mind as I was creating this course was that I realized that all of the other methylation courses that exist out there are so genetically oriented. And I found that just in my practice alone from a clinical perspective, trying to treat genetics, and I tried to do it that way for a long time, just try to use this gene mutation and and, and use somebody use a genetic test to try to really you know get them on a certain supplement protocol without really paying any attention to these other important tests. And what I found was it just it doesn't work. It's it's just it, when the rubber meets the road, it doesn't work that way. So the best way to use a gene test is kind of in concert with all this other investigative process. And so this is truly a holistic uh, course that will really empower the clinician to help their clients to adapt to their uh, their whatever their their health lifestyle problems are, whatever their genetics are, this course will teach clinicians how to teach their clients how to adapt and how to get an ideal level of health despite their gene mutations. You teach this course also at FDN, the Functional Diagnostic Nutrition. You teach a abbreviated version of that, correct? Well, in the FDN module too. So I'm I'm basically on the 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 staff as the head of research and development or one of the R and D. Uh, part of the R&D team with FDN. And I basically in module two, FDN two, I created a, uh, a course which was specifically to teach clinicians about how to use the environmental pollutants test combined with the organic acids test, how to interpret the organic acids test. So that was kind of a very kind of beginning phase of that. Um, but FDN practitioners, if there are any FDN practitioners that are listening to this, uh, my methylation course is approved for CE units, for continuing education units, okay, about 10 great. hours material. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, it looks like an amazing course, fantastic course. Yeah, because I was searching around for uh, methylation courses, and I came upon you, uh, your website, and I thought it was it looked fantastic, and that's why I wanted to have you come on the show and talk about it. Again, I'm not opposed to, uh, you know, I, I appreciate all of the other work that other clinicians are doing out there regarding methylation and MTHFR, but I feel that there's just kind of this overemphasis on genetics in general without necessarily looking at how to really do good clinical investigative work and use biochemistry, biochemical testing in concert with it. So that's I, what you get in the course. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, well, I have a question I like to ask all of my guests. What do you think is the most pressing health issue in the world today? Besides ignorance? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that made the big one. I, I don't know. Well, that's a good question. And in the 21st century, I think that there's some unique things that we're really going to have to deal with um, that we weren't having to deal with even 50 years ago. I'd say that probably one of the most pressing concerns, in my opinion, is the prevalence of varying forms of environmental toxicity. And the reason I bring that up is that if you look at what humans were exposed to in terms of environmental pollutants 100 years ago, there was really no such thing as environmental chemicals 100 years ago. Yeah, it was mercury and cadmium and lead and heavy metals, and we've known about the effect of toxic metals on health since antiquity for thousands of years. But the presence of environmental chemicals like bisphenol A, for example, glyophosate, the, these types of chemicals are very new. And... The human body, I don't know if it can process or remove these chemicals to the degree that it needs to, to achieve an ideal level of health, or at least it makes it very challenging. And there's very little research that's been done on the compounded effect 
that environmental chemicals have. So when so we know that certain chemicals cause cancer, but we don't know what happens when you combine that chemical with six other chemicals or 10 other chemicals or 80 other chemicals, which in reality is what people are being exposed to today. We're not being exposed to five chemicals. We're being exposed to 80,000. So to me, the pressing issue in the 21st century is how to adapt biologically despite this myriad of this myriad, these myriad environmental toxins that are, that, are in, that are affecting us on a day-to-day basis. And I think that we're going to continue to see the rises of neurologically inflammatory diseases like autism disorder because of environmental toxins like mercury and other chemicals and heavy metals, but other types of conditions like Alzheimer's disease, cancer, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis. I think these diseases are going to continue to be on the rise. And I think that environmental toxins, which are so ubiquitous in the environment, are definitely playing a huge role in gene expression and in the development of these types of problems. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And that's why I advocate as much as I can the use of infrared saunas, because this is one of the only ways that people can get these chemicals out of their bodies, sweat them out of the body, because the liver can't handle them. The liver has never seen many of these chemicals. And our livers are so overloaded, you need to do an infrared sauna to bypass the liver and get these chemicals out of your body. I think it's the only hope, I think, for many people to live a a long disease-free life. Yeah, we frequently recommend sauna therapy to our clients, and there's been a lot of research going back more than 40 years now showing the actual benefits of sauna therapy. And, uh, for example, um, numerous toxic metals and chemicals have been shown to be increased in very high amounts via the sweat glands, um, even more so than the urine and through the kidneys and through through the liver and gallbladder. So sauna therapy, this from the perspective of removing toxic chemicals and heavy metals from the body certainly has its place. And in addition to that, sauna therapy has been shown to be very effective at raising nitric oxide levels, which is especially critical for anybody dealing with um, cardiovascular disease, diseases of neuropathy, problems with microvascular circulation, things like this. Yeah, yeah, I think it's uh, they're just the the benefits are too numerous to list, even in one hour or so. Right. Um, But they're just uh, they're incredible. I love my sauna. So uh, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and where they can find you? So again, my name is Michael McAvoy, and I'm a uh, nutritional consultant, and I'm the CEO and founder of Metabolic Healing, and we have an, uh, an online web-based nutritional consulting practice and educational uh, programs that we offer to clinicians as well, and our website is www.metabolichealing.com. That's metabolichealing.com. Well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Wendy, for having me. It's great to be here. And stay tuned. Listeners, if you want to learn more about how to heal your your health conditions naturally, detoxification, and the modern paleo diet, go to my website, live2110.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Live to 110 podcast. 